We're grateful that you've come this morning. It is our firm conviction that we need one another. It's our conviction that our lives are intertwined in Christ in such a deep and long-lasting way that our families, our allegiances, all that we have here in this life and on this earth eventually will fade away and we will be swept up together in one family under God's fathering with Christ as our first brother. And so we believe that it's a good thing for us to practice, to have some times together as a family. God has commanded this, and it's sure my desire, my hope would be that I could be an encouragement to you this morning. If somehow my words would help us to better understand or better to think through the words of Scripture and the life of Jesus, then I would be, I'd be thrilled. I want to give you a little bit of an update or a little bit of a, an orientation of where we are before I start reading in James chapter 5. What we decided to do this summer is to think about life by the fruit of the Spirit, or life according to the Spirit of God. Jesus told us in John chapter 14 something drastic, something crazy, something insane. This is the, this is the testimony, the word of Jesus himself, and as Christians who have taken on his life, we're to believe it and then to see and ask, where does this show up in us? This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, it is better that I go. His disciples are hearing word and wind of, he's nearing the end of his life, they realize that he is about to go to his death, and they are, at times, quite literally throwing their bodies in front of him. And he stops them and he says, you don't understand, let me tell you something, it is better that I go. Now that is a profound, unbelievable statement. Hard to believe even. It's not unbelievable just in the sense that it's big. I do think we have a hard time believing it. What Jesus is telling us is that there is more access to God, more power, more change, more transformation available to us now by the coming of his spirit than if he were here as a part of our church. If we had a special pew marked off and a big plaque that said Jesus of Nazareth and he could only sit there and every week he would waltz in And then he would talk to us afterward and he would heal. That's the experience the disciples had. What Jesus begs them to believe and what he tells us in Scripture is that the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promise that Jesus' Spirit could indwell us is actually better than that. What a powerful statement. It's a kind of sentiment that would change everything if we just grasped it. And so our pursuit, our desire over the summer as we consider, you know, Galatians tells us this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's these kinds of things, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, all these fruits of the Spirit. What is being pressed on us is that if you are in Jesus Christ, He is working in you these kind of things. And I want, it's my greatest desire to desire this kind of life. In all of our getting, in all of our striving, in all of our succeeding and longing, I want to be longing and I would love us to be longing for the right kinds of things, the life of Jesus to be made manifest in us. And so this summer what we're doing is we're taking a week at a time, not that they're individual personality traits, none of us are picking and choosing, I'm not going through nine options for the thing that you might want to be. So this isn't, hey, option number four, maybe you want to be a patient person. 
These come together with the life of Jesus. It comes when he indwells us. But what we wondered is, is it possible that by slowing down and meditating on each word that we might be more attentive, more celebratory when we see this in ourselves and in one another? Maybe more understanding of what it is that the Spirit wants to move in us. Because here's what I can say with certainty. God's Spirit desires to bring these things about in you. It doesn't matter your circumstance. It doesn't matter how far along you are. It doesn't matter what is grating against you. God's Spirit, His will, His desire, what He's doing is this in you. Now, there's a lot that I can't tell you. I am no prophet. In fact, oftentimes, I feel very inadequate when I pray for or I think about the people that I love that are in our church, that are in our midst, and I realize how little I can do to help them. Sometimes I wish I could tell them, oh, it's so easy. Just take this job, just marry that person, just say no to that, say yes to this, live in this place. Here's how I could solve your problems. Get out of this addiction this way, deal with the hurt of this person that way. I can't tell you a lot of things. And so I get excited when I can tell you something for sure. The Spirit of Jesus Christ living in you wants to bring about this kind of life in you. He's not doing anything else, really, except preparing you to be with God, to be before Him, and to be in His family forever as this kind of person. That's just what He's doing. It's what He's up to. He's turning the dial, slowly turning the dial. So this morning I want to meditate on and think on patience. If this is what Jesus is doing in us, if you and I are on the same little journey toward more patience, if the Spirit of God is turning the dial of patience in us slowly like the guy on the island on loss, then let's consider, is anybody that deep of nerddom to get that? Nobody remembers the wheel? Anyway, it's a long time ago. If that's what he's doing, then let's think on this. Now, Scripture says, as it has about all of these, it turns out that the life of God in humanity is a pretty big theme in the Bible. So every week I come to these big themes, these concepts, and I think, oh, wow, the Bible has a lot to say about this. I wonder why. Well, it turns out this is what God's like, and when he begins to move in his people, these things come out. So they're kind of everywhere, and I just chose James chapter 5 as a good example as a place to hang our hats for a while, to maybe get a little bit of a, a skeleton, a frame for us to think about the concept of patience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read James chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 7 and go to verse 11. James 5, 7 to 11. And then we're going to think about, we're going to try to define patience. And then we're going to think about some of the evidence of patience in our lives. Some of the things James says, here's a way to get about this. So if you're ready, if you've got a Bible in front of you, or I suppose you could look on the screen, it'll be behind me. I'd love for you to follow along as I read. This is the fifth chapter of the book of James. I'm going to start in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, 
Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I'm going to pause there, and I would love to pray. If you could unite your heart to me, or to mine, to me, unite your heart to me. Please don't do that. Unite your heart to God this morning. We just, we just went from a church service to a cult real quick in one, uh, in one slip of the tongue. One slip of the tongue. Maybe I'll say it better this way. Should we pray together? Let's pray together. That's what I should say. Father, you are good beyond what we can see. And we see a lot of your goodness. You welcome us, though we are unworthy. You forgive us in our sin. You have given to us, initiated, come to us. You beckon us with more enthusiasm and joy than we could imagine. And then more than that, after having come, Jesus, after living a life that we should have lived and couldn't, and dying a death that we deserved, and being raised to glorious new life, after all of that, Father and Son, you sent your Spirit. Thank you. And we ask now, Spirit of God, would you help us to understand Scripture? And that in understanding, seeing this vision, that we would more clearly understand ourselves, our world, the people around us, and most of all, that we would understand you, God. I pray for every bit of distraction and divergence, the doubts that are going to nag us this morning, the heaviness of heart, busyness, bitterness. Give us the kind of self-control now to love you well with our minds and to open ourselves to you. Spirit of God, would you please, any lasting effort, help us to not just go through the motions. I don't want to give a speech this morning We don't want a pep talk. We want more of the life of God in us. So Holy Spirit, would you please bless your people? May you have a a more wide berth, easier reign, to make us more like Jesus more quickly. We ask you to please do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians tells us the fruit of the Spirit, one of them is patience. James is going to summarize near the end of this letter that he writes that patience ought to be manifest in us. And so we ought to think about the idea of patience. I think most of us, when we think about this word, think about it in a couple of different contexts. You either immediately think of circumstances, patience in your circumstances, or you think about patience with people. And I'll include underneath the category of people, patience with self. These are often the big central aspects of patience. If I ask anyone to define what does patience mean, they'll either give an example or start to describe someone in a certain set of circumstances or dealing with a certain kind of person. And it is true, of course, that patience not only takes place in those set of contexts, But I might say that patience is a difficult thing for us because patience is a a, a kind of 
good response that most of us think, in, think of only in negative circumstances. You see, you only need patience, and this is the odd thing about patience, you only need patience when the thing that you wish or want or imagined is not presently taking place. So patience, as delightful as it sounds, as wonderful as it would be, often feels costly to us, difficult, something that is beyond us because it always shows up needed in moments where we are not very happy. Patience is that spirit, that fruit of the spirit that is most necessary in us exactly in times when what we wish was happening is not taking place. Patience, I believe, is a kind of contentment of spirit that rises up and gives us rest exactly in the moment when disappointment is most threatening. True patience, then, can make a person's spirit, it's the kind of thing that rises up to protect and guard a person's spirit no matter the circumstances or scoundrels nearby. Patience is that powerful, guarding, protecting of heart, soul, mind that would otherwise be lost by a world of chaos and confusion and grasping. Most of us describe the moment of patience with grimaces because of the threat, because of what is being taken, because, what of, because of the things that are not happening. I read a definition of patience, especially as it relates to James. How is James going to frame this for us? And I thought it was helpful. It more or less gets to this idea of circumstances and people, but he says it like this. Patience is that self-restraint of spirit that does not hastily retaliate against a wrong and the temperament that does not easily succumb under suffering. I'll say it one more time. I thought this was a helpful definition. Patience is that self-restraint of spirit that does not hastily retaliate against a wrong and steadfastness of temperament that does not easily succumb under suffering. Imagine being that kind of a person. The kind of a person who, when someone describes you, says that they are a mix of self-restraint that never jumps to conclusions and never, ever hastily retaliates, does not re-send wrongs, and to be the kind of person who is steadfast, who has a temperament of not giving up under suffering. Now that is a definition with teeth. This is a fruit of the spirit with backbone. There is a kind of dignity and strength behind patience that is so delightful and I so long for. And I believe that these two ideas of self-restraint against others or wrongs and then 
holding up steadfastly under suffering is described here in James chapter 5. And I'm going to use James chapter 5 as a launching off point to consider how it is that we get more of this kind of spirit. What does James recommend? How is he telling us to frame it? Before we get here, I want to mention that I'm going to throw it into a couple of categories. And here's my guess right as I start these categories, that one or more of these categories will feel more difficult for you. And it may lead you off into a study, or it may lead you off into other portions of the Bible that would be helpful. In other words, here's, I'll say it like this. Some of you have so many whys in your past. You don't know why that specific set of circumstances happened. You don't know why this malady or illness in your life. You don't know why this person, why this accident, why this bit of suffering. And so as I talk through patients with circumstances and the condition of the world, you might think to yourself, it's hard for me to move on beyond this because I need to learn patience here. And I want to acknowledge that up front, that I won't be able to say all there is to say about each of these topics, but I want to invite you that if God's Spirit moves in you and you think to yourself, I need to to work here a little bit more, to listen to that invitation, to ask others around you, to see if someone might have some help for you in these areas. It might be that as we talk about caring for others or patients with others or with self, that you think to yourself, yeah, it's not a circumstance, it's strictly and totally a person. For many of us, that person that we have hard time having patience with is ourselves. You might say to yourself, man, I just can't get over this and I need to think on this. View that as an invitation to move toward others and to move toward Scripture more. What I'm saying is, I can't tell you all there is in the riches of Scripture on these topics And we might be stirring things up as we talk about each of these words over the summer. Don't let let yourself be stirred up with nowhere to go. Press toward God, toward one another, and toward Scripture. This is the big overriding statement as we go into these. That being said, this passage of James 5, I'm going to focus on a few different areas. They're all going to start with F. It helps alliteration. You can write your notes really nice. First one, fear the Lord. So patience has a connection to fearing the Lord. We're going to talk about that. Then focus the heart. Or focus your heart. So fear the Lord, focus your heart. And then finally, fellowship. And maybe I'll just add fellowship with long-suffering. James seems to get at each of these, and it marks a patient person. So let's jump in. He starts off and he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In fact, he mentions the coming of the Lord numerous times. Verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then mentions again in verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. It turns out, it seems kind of simple, that life with God's Spirit is a full reset in relationship and perspective to him. So one of the first keys for becoming this kind of person is nearly always going to be to put God in his proper place. 
to remember that he is completely and utterly in control. In fact, maybe I would just say it like this. Nearly every fruit of the Spirit stems from a root that begins deep down in us and remembers, I am not God. Now, I know that sounds plain and simple, but I need that reminder every once in a while, and I don't know if you do as well. You are not God. Remember, James says, the coming of the Lord. Remember that the Lord is coming and that what he is saying and what he's doing is far more important than the circumstances that we're in. Fear of the Lord as a beginning of life with God is crucial. This also leads us to remember that when we're dealing with patience, that the opposite spirit of patience, what we call impatience, is oftentimes deeper than impatience. In fact, it is a warning bell for us that there's some other deeper, much more malicious spirit in us, and that spirit would be pride. We fear the Lord and remember Him and put Him in proper place because it is often pride and doubt that lead us to impatience in the first place. I was struck by a phrase in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 this week. It's not going to be on the screen, but I think it's in the middle of Ecclesiastes 6, about verse 8. He says this simple statement. He says, The end of a thing is better than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. And it struck me how often my instinct toward impatience is merely one more manifestation of the malady of pride. Maybe I'll say it like this. So many of us are impatient with circumstances of life, with others around us, and essentially our impatience is a warning signal. It is our soul trying to reach out with this complaint. God, you're not moving fast enough. God, you are getting it wrong. God, why don't you know what I know? Why put that driver in front of me? Why this family? Why this circumstance? Why this job? Impatience, when we sit with it for a while, is often just one more expression of doubt and the kind of pride that says, God, if you just let me take the wheel for a little while. Patience and humility are closer cousins than we often give them credit for. We must have enough humility in us to realize that our impatience stems from trying to take over things and to be what we are never supposed to take over or never supposed to be. I was imagining this idea of a, of a grand orchestra. You know, he starts here with this illustration of the farmer in the earth, this grand orchestra, and there's someone who has been spending forever putting together this wonderful, wonderful piece of music, grand orchestra, everything put in place, and he's bringing it to be, and there's, we're maybe just in one little section of it, and they're, I'm just going to make stuff up, I'm not an orchestra person. He's, the, you know, the orchestra guy. Actually, when I was little, there was a, uh, a choir director at our church that was the most flamboyant, wonderfully, our just like huge choir director at, at our church. And my brother and I would just giggle to death in the pews. And then at home, we would practice and we would pretend to be. But he would always be like this. You know what I mean? Like that. It was like uh, he, was either, he was either doing Tai Chi or he was 
orchestrating the thing. So imagine that. And all of creation, God's in charge of it, and he's been bringing this thing about, and he's telling the trombones, you got this, you got this 50 years. And they're just slowly building, and they're just slowly building, slowly building. And I imagine this scenario that God is there, and he's orchestrating all of life, and he's in his proper place. And he set everything there and put them in order. And then sometimes I imagine me jumping up and trying to take the, what's the thing? The wand. <laughs> I'm trying to take his wand, and I have a nose flute. I'm like, don't you see? we got to get this thing moving. And then I just start playing stuff all over in the middle of it. And I'm going, and I'm like telling the drummers, or I'm telling the trumpeteers that they need to just really, really speed it up, and they could add something over here, a little bit of a splash. And everyone with proper perspective of the world sees me for what I am, a terrible imitation, a pretender who is only seeking to mess up the beauty of the thing in motion. And yet impatience constantly says, oh man, if I could just conduct this thing. If I could just speed it up. I used to play songs when I led children's worship stuff in my early 20s. The kids' favorite songs are the ones that go faster and faster and faster. This little light of mine, by the time we were done singing that song with the guitar, we would be spinning so fast we'd fall over. Faster, 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 faster. And I see that, that level of spirit in me so often. I don't even have the decency to complain to God in words and to say to him something like this, I would like this a little bit quicker. Could that please happen? Instead, I'm just screaming indignantly. Faster, faster, more. Change it. And it is fear of the Lord. James says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In other words, this is his job, and he'll take care of it when he comes. Impatience forgets that the Lord has promised he is coming to set things right. He repeats again later, he is coming. Remember, he is coming. He's going to work. He's going to move. He's going to bring things about. You can entrust yourself to him. Secondarily, fear of the Lord remembers that God governs all of his creation and all of its systems. A farmer cannot hurry the crops up. That's what he's saying. The farmer cannot hurry the crops up. The farmer doesn't get to go out to the ground, lay down, yell at the soil. Would you germinate in there? Where are you? You see, God is Lord over all of his creation and all of its systems. He put them in place. You need to work the soil. You need to plant the seed. You need to wait for the rain. For whatever reason, God has built in systems and waiting into the world, and we need to receive it. Now, here's the thing. I bet farmers wish that the precious fruit would come quicker. They would make more money, it would be easier, they'd have more downtime, they wouldn't have to worry as long. You know, every, every day that that's just growing and the fruit's not there yet, the hailstorm could come. The wild boars could tra- trample, 
It was a dangerous farm. But every day that it's not there, something could go terribly wrong. The farmer wishes, I'm sure, that it could go quicker. There's nothing abnormal about him to have that instinct, but what he must do is submit to the system that he did not design, never has been, and never will be in control of. And it is a good and instructive thing for us to remember that God is still governing his creation. And he is still in control of the systems. And he has built in the moments of waiting. And he has built in the buffer zones of our growth and development. And then more than that, more than even that, the fact that he has set these things in motion, but he has promised again and again and again that he will come to judge. That he'll fix the things that seem out of place. And it is fear of the Lord, proper putting of him in his place, that allows us to release the kind of constant striving and grasping and control that shows up in us as impatience. Remember Remember the Lord. He ends verse 11, at least the section that we read, by saying, you've seen the purpose of the Lord and remember how he is compassionate and merciful. Patience in us will not come about because we have simply tried to be more patient. Patience in us will come about when we are more deeply convinced that God is who he says he is and that we can rest letting him rule think that marks a patient person more than anything else. So fear the Lord is number one. Second, James has this interesting little statement here. So if the first is fear the Lord, then later he says this, establish your hearts. You also be patient. He repeats the refrain, be patient. It's the third time I think already that he's using this word in this section. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. What an interesting statement. What he seems to be saying here is to grab hold of yourself. If something needs to be established, I get the impression that it's a little bit wobbly. It's out of order. There's a kind of chaos there. If you were to steady something, it means that you grasp on and slow it down. And one of the keys to being a more patient person is to have the understanding or to be able to examine your own heart and realize, wow, I am really impatient. I've become much more impatient as a driver in the last 10 years. You know who notices that more than me? My wife. She helps me focus my heart. I just have a running commentary. It's like I'm trying out for the next Madden game or something. Just a running commentary when I drive. Oh, I bet this person's going to pull over. Yep. And then maybe she gets most defensive because I usually talk about Louisiana license plates. And she's from there. But I just get more impatient. And so Sarah says to me, like, do you even hear yourself right now? In other words, she's saying to me, focus your heart. Think about who you're becoming and who you are. So many of us live with a kind of constant level of discontented hurry of soul that we never pause to acknowledge it. There is a striving in us. We are marked not in an inner 
self of calm, rest, steadiness, but rather panic, striving, erratic, moody, inner being. And here, by the power of the Spirit, James is saying to them, hold on to yourself, grab yourself and think. Take a reckoning for just a moment and ask yourself, is patience in me or not? And then he lists some of the things. I think we could make a list here. This is what an impatient heart looks like. These are some signs that you may be forfeiting this Jesus-given spiritual gift of patience. You may be forfeiting it if you find in your inner life things like this, grumbling. And then remember this as well. The things that make it out of your mouth have been down there a while. That sounds terrible, like a burp or something. But this is Jesus' illustration, not mine. The things that make it out of your mouth have been down there a while. So by the time you are actively outward grumbling, that's not the first moment when you might have become impatient. That's a warning sign to you. Whoa, what is going on down there? So you may grumble against one another. And I take that because he says, you need to establish your hearts. Don't grumble against one another. It could be that grumbling, especially against others, is a sign of an impatient heart. He says, remember this. The judge is standing at the door. I take it to be this. One of the conditions that comes from an impatient heart is a kind of self-righteous judgment of all things and all people. Do you find in yourself a critical spirit? Too easily jumping to conclusions? Not very impressed with anyone or anything? What a horrible, joyless way to live, and I know that because I've been there. What a joyless way to live, to just not be impressed by anything. Just kind of judgmental about it all. Well, that may be evidence of an impatient heart. Perhaps... You are finding in yourself anger, increasing anger at circumstances. It says here that we should note the steadfastness of Job. And consider that perhaps Job had a good reason to have anger at circumstances, and yet we're supposed to consider his example that he somehow found patience and steadfastness in the midst of that. If you're the kind of person who more often, like me in driving, finds little irritations at at the most stupid circumstances. We need, I I need God so badly, it's unbelievable. Like, I think I want to actually make a difference in the world. I hope to help you. And then I'm bothered because a guy's turn signal was on for three seconds too little or something. What a petty person. But there's impatience in me, and it's got to come out somewhere. And so I find increasing anger at circumstances. If you find yourself increasingly angry at the circumstances around you, it may be evidence of an impatient heart. Now, another one. He says, don't grumble against one another. I think the idea being here that these words actually come out into the wild. He goes on to verse 12 in James chapter 5. We didn't read it yet, but he says, Above all things, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Yes, yes, no, no. I think what he's trying to say here is, sometimes an impatient heart gives us too many words spoken too early. We hastily judge and say too much. 
it's rare that a patient, restful spirit ends up erupting in too many words. The opposite is very true. What's the, uh, what's the cliche phrase? Doth protesteth too much. Your reaction, your words, too many of them, spoken too early, hastily, judging, flows from an impatient heart. I might just say this. If you're the kind of person who has an immediate and well-formed reaction to every single topic that happens in the world, you may be cultivating an impatient heart. If you see so clearly that you know who is at fault and when they were at fault and what needs to be done about it, within five seconds of hearing about a circumstance, perhaps you have too many words spoken too early, could be evidence of an impatient heart. If you find increasing despair over suffering, not steadfastness, but despair. If you find yourself, thinking to yourself, I want to quit more and more and more and more, then we need to focus our hearts. We start with the fear of the Lord. It's to confess to him, I want to be in control, and I'm not in control, and I acknowledge that you're better at it. That's a good prayer to start on the path to patience. And then more than that, to say, God, help me to get a hold of my heart. I want to know what's going on down there, and oftentimes I don't see it. So first, there's a fear of the Lord. Second, James says, establish your hearts. Focus your hearts. And then finally, consider the way that you interact with others, and I just call this fellowship, with long-suffering. Don't grumble against one another. It's amazing how many times the one another's come up in the fruit of the Spirit. Patience with others is going to be an outworking of true patience in us. In fact, it's this way with all of the fruits of the Spirit. It's why a couple of weeks back we talked through patience, or not through patience, through peace. A few weeks back we talked through peace, and I'm sure that it would have been much more uplifting, and there's a lot to say in Scripture about an inner sense of peace about us saying, I want to let go of anxiety, and I, inside of me, want to be peaceful. However, it's amazing how many times, in addition to that experience of peace, passages about peace end up being pushed towards peace with others. And I found the same thing to be true with patience. How many times true patience is not just a gift to be entertained selfishly in our own being, but true patience is tested and worked out in relationship with others. The gifts of the Spirit are for the us in here, not only for individuals. Relational joy, relational peace, relational love, and relational patience. How many of us have too quickly judged, and perhaps more than that, too quickly written off people around us? Could it be said of you, that you are patient with the people that God has placed in your life. I thought I was a very patient person until I was put in positions where my impatience was exposed. Parenting, for instance. Trying to understand a spouse, for instance. Being sinned against, for instance trying to help someone understand or learn something, for instance. It's always in the relationship with another that the true evidence of the work of the Spirit in us comes to fruition or shows its lack. 
And can I just say that there is one fruit of the Spirit, one aspect of this fruit of the Spirit that I have longed for and prayed for more often, at least over the last year. Here's what I have seen, just an observation. I believe that when we operate in a spirit of fleshliness, of us, in the spirit of us, one of the first things that goes, one of the first marks of evidence that it's the spirit of us and not the spirit of Jesus is we begin to lack patience with others. That results in a kind of culture that says, I'm going to engage you just long enough to hear you say something stupid, just long enough to realize that we disagree, and then I'm out. Patience with others is in large part gone in our world. When was the last time you heard someone characterize our world, our culture, our relationships like this? You know, here's the thing. A lot of disagreement, a lot of good discussion, but I just can't believe how patient everyone is with everyone. They just really sit. They go the extra mile. They engage again when they really could have not. I'm really surprised how patient we all are. And when no one says that, Instead, there are cries and actually anger when we don't cancel people quickly enough. Now, this kind of thing shows up in Christian circles, I believe, just as much as those people out there. We just have different categories where we are impatient with one another. The Bible could not be more clear that one of the marks of Jesus and life in the spirit of Jesus, in the family of God with Jesus as our brother, is that we are patient with one another. God has been insanely patient with us, and so we are joyfully patient with one another, but oftentimes we do not live like this. I'm going to read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, and I want it to be a kind of commentary Commentary on a common question. What do you do when someone's wrong? What do you do when you see so clearly that someone else is weak and you are strong? This is Romans 15, starting in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. What a profound, upside-down, Jesus kind of statement. How many arguments or conversations have you been in or overheard over the last number of years where you were convinced that you were the strong and they were the weak? How many issues or topics could we think about where we're forced to interact with one another and we all have a strong conviction that the other just doesn't quite get it. And how often have we let ourselves off the hook to say something like this, well, I'm so glad I know where they stand so I can avoid them. I'm so glad we had this conversation so that I know where 
else I need to go to worship. I know which restaurants to avoid. I know which family members to never speak to again. I know which Christians to have a little bit of a side eye in every single conversation. I know that I can color everything they ever say and prejudge every motivation because I know they're weak. That's not what the Spirit of Jesus says in us. See, here's the amazing things about Romans 15. I watch people interact over things. One convinced they're so strong, the other not willing to admit that they're weak, and vice versa. And here's the amazing thing. The Bible has categories for this. Romans 15 says this. This is the funnest part. You can even be certain that you're strong, even stronger than another person. You get to be the strong one, but that's not enough for us. We have to be the strong one that then lords it over and pushes away. But this is not the spirit of Jesus. Romans 15 says this, we who are strong, we don't have an option, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. You can leave an argument in a conversation with someone, you get to say two things, I'm strong, not only am I strong, I'm stronger. More than that, that weak person has failings. The question is not if you've determined that, the question is not can you determine that, but once you've determined it, what will you do with that understanding? And the Bible is clear. You have an obligation to be patient with, to bear with, to gird yourself up under the failings of the weak. It is the Spirit of Jesus in us that presses us to last longer in relationships that are threatened by disagreement. It is the Spirit of Jesus in us that says, I will move toward those people who are not like me. Not to please ourselves. I think in large part, this is what revival would look like. This is what the Spirit of God moving in our midst would look like. It would be more and more people, though convinced of certain things, and there are truths and there are wrongs, there are errors, there are failings, but it would be a whole group of people committed to this one idea. I have been given grace. I have been given light. I have been given truth, but I will not please myself. I will not walk across the backs of the weak to prove my strength, but I will lay down my strength in order to bear with the failings of the weak. That is what patience is. You're patient with your children. They should not be yelling at you at 2 a.m. in the morning for food. I remember like with little babies, they're just screaming. I'm right there. I'm putting the bottles together. It's right here. You woke me from sleep. They're screaming at you. Patience in that moment, I'm bearing with the failings of the weak. Oh, you weak. I remember telling all my friends after the babies were there, I used to think, you know that insult when you call someone a baby? It's way worse. That should be... That should be the kind of thing where people fight immediately. Like that's how weak and how many failings a baby has. You're that irrational. Oh, them's are fighting words, right? Patience is going to cost us. It just will. We will bear with the failings of the weak. It just so happens that this is exactly the spirit that dwells in us if we follow Jesus Christ, because Jesus did not please himself, but gave himself. He had to constantly bear with the failings of the weak. 
He's trying to save them from their sins, and they just keep saying, like, I'm going to jump in front of you. No, you're not going to wash me. No, they won't take you. No, no, no. Jesus bearing with the failings of the weak. So please, let me encourage you to consider, do you have anyone? See, most of us, this is a hard thing. We, we cocoon ourselves so that we never have to even confront this issue. Like, I, I'm going to live a whole life where only the strong get in. And I want to ask us, especially when it comes to family, when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not be impatient with one another. There's so much that can be said on these topics. Here's the idea. God is doing this in you. Let's open our hearts and our hands and our minds. Let's remember to fear him. You're not in control. Let's ask for clarity of our own souls and take, take control or take grasp of our hearts. Establish our hearts. And then, in the battle lab of real relationships with one another, let's be patient. Let's pray. God, I ask that you'd help us to be patient people. I pray that we would not be proud, but would believe you, that you forgive us, and you care for us, and you love us. I pray that we would be motivated by a kind of steadfastness, not a striving or a stirred-up spirit, but that we would offer to the world a resting, a pointing to you. God, I confess, I want to be in control. Thank you for not putting me in control of the world. Thank you for loving me more than that. We confess, God, we don't often see our hearts properly. We don't pay attention to the warning signs. And God, we ask for forgiveness when we push away, when we please ourselves and don't bear with one another. Forgive us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.